The Duct Tape Marketing Podcast is brought to you by GoToWebinar, web events and online meetings made easy. Visit GoToWebinar.com and start your free 30-day trial today. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. This is your host, John Jantz, and my guest today is Seth Godin. I think this maybe is the third time he's been around. I could have him on weekly and my show would do much better. But he is a best-selling author, entrepreneur, agent of change. He uh, has 12 best-selling books, I think. Uh, maybe I'm off on the count to, to his name. And today we're going to talk about what will surely be number 13, Lynchpin, which asks the question, are you indispensable? Seth, thanks for joining me. Well, John, thanks for taking the time. You're very generous to do this for your listeners and for me. Well, I, you know, I said we we're going to talk about the book, um, and we are, but uh, th- there's there's a couple things I want to talk a little bit about just in writing in general, and the and and then I also want to talk a little bit about your your promotion of books and and not. I know you sometimes don't like to talk about it in a way that says, well, here's all the cool things I have planned, but I think it's very instructional. The way you, you tend to wrap a marketing campaign or example, a tremendous case study around seemingly each of the launches of your book, I think is incredibly instructional for anyone who is is doing anything, not just selling a book. So uh, first off, uh, the daily writing that you do, I assume it's almost daily, uh, for your blog. So um, a question I get quite often, because I try to write daily as well, is, I mean, where do these ideas come from uh, that, that you post on almost a daily basis? I mean, they, they, are, they are not simple repeats uh, of, you know, something you read. They tend to be big ideas. How, how, does that, how do you generate that on a daily basis? Well, I guess I, I would respond by asking people how can they not generate that on a daily basis. You know, if you, if you talk to a, a plumber, as Harlan Ellison is famous for saying, you don't say, wow, that's amazing. You unplugged 6,000 toilets in your career. I mean, that's what plumbers do. And what we do for a living now is we think. What we do for a living now is we manipulate ideas and we make change happen. If you knew that people, even five people, were waiting every single day to read what you were going to write on a blog, your brain would rise to the occasion. It would notice things. It would find things to talk about. There are very few people on this planet who go out to lunch with a friend and have absolutely nothing to say. <laughs> there are very few people who are unable uh, to speak when spoken to. Well, if you're good at speaking to one individual, then you should be good at writing. And the reason that people have trouble with this, and the reason they look for magic tricks and ask questions like, where do your ideas come from, is because there's a part of our brain, my brain, your brain, everyone's brain, that doesn't want us to do this. It is afraid and concerned that if we do this, people might laugh at us. And being laughed at is really horrible, we think. And I guess the argument of my book is uh, that's what we get paid to do now, is take the chance that people are going to laugh at us. Well, you know, it's we're going to talk a lot about fear because you're right. That is a big part of your book. But um, what if that's not – I mean, what if that's become a part of my job, but I don't – I don't see that as my job, uh, or at least I've never, I've never been told that that's what I get paid for. Exactly. You know, and uh, Spike Lee never got told that what he got paid to do was make movies that would make people profoundly uncomfortable and then transform them. And Bach never got told that he was supposed to compose music of a certain style. Because you can't tell people what you want if you're asking them to do something that you don't know you need. And that is 
the magic part of the equation of what's just occurred. That the giant transformation that happened just in the last five or ten years is we have an economy that used to make money by leveraging a factory, a system, a process, to an economy now where the people who win are the ones who do stuff we didn't expect and we didn't ask for. What uh, th- this is, um, I'll try to ask this in a non-boring way, <laughs> uh, but uh, I-, I draw inspiration for what I do quite often outside of work or or the things like work. Um, in fact, it was a book you turned me on to, The Ramen King, um, that I draw tremendous inspiration from. I don't know if you remember recommending that book on, on one of your posts or not. Um, where, do, where do, I'm not saying where you get your ideas. What, what inspires you? What, what is the kind of stuff that, that makes you sort of regenerated? Well, you know, like you, it almost never comes from reading the traditional blog posts or following the traditional Twitterers. It comes from um, seeing a movie or interacting in a place that I've never been. Uh, if I am I'm on the road eating in another city, I will never, ever go to a restaurant that I've been to before or that's been recommended by the concierge. Uh, I dig deep into Chahound and I find a place or a cuisine I've never had before. Uh, if I uh, am listening to music, I'll spend half the time listening to music I like and half the time listening to music I've never heard before. Yeah. Uh, if I'm driving in a town, I will put on a radio station uh, where they're talking about stuff I don't agree with. And confronting these edges in our culture is bound to create sparks, and sparks turn into fires. Yeah, but Rush Limbaugh just pisses me off too much. I can't do that now. Don't get me started. <laughs> um, so, so listening to you, that sounds very intentional. I mean, that's, it's like I'm feeding myself, you know, by doing that. Of course, yeah. and it's the intentional part that... I'm trying to push forward here. That If you have a living digging ditches, and I hope you don't, uh, you don't dig ditches when you feel like it. You dig ditches because it's your job. And when you get tired, you don't stop. You still dig ditches because it's your job. Well, our job now is to find inspiration. Our job now is to make change. Our job now is to inspire and to put surprising ideas out there. You can't wait till you feel like it. You have to seek it out and do it. And when the fear comes, you can't say, well, now I have writer's block, and I'm going to stop. It's your job. What Elizabeth Tibbert said at time was great. No one gets engineering block. How come? <laughs> right? And, and the reason is that we're not afraid to, de- to design another bridge that looks just like the last bridge. But we're afraid to write that paragraph uh, that might be out on a limb. We're afraid to write that piece of copy that isn't just like the piece of copy we wrote last week. And my argument is that if all you can do is that, I can find someone cheaper than you to do it. You know, the, the, the difficult thing I think that the last few years has brought, particularly for independent business owners, is the, the line between my job and my life and when I'm on and when I'm off has, I used to say, is blurred. It's non-existent uh, now. So, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you balance that? Well, I, th- there are two things that I've done. The first thing is, Uh, I think you should seek out to do work that you like to do, uh, which seems pretty obvious but is missed by a lot of people. Uh, If you're going to put your heart and soul into it, it better be something you're proud of. And that's why I always roll my eyes when I hear about, you know, the 
the smokeless tobacco people suing the city of New York today uh, because they're, they banned grape-flavored chewing tobacco. You know, the people who are doing that, that's their job. They chose to do it. They don't have to do that. Uh, I don't know how you put your heart and soul into suing for the right to market grape tobacco to 12 year olds. <laughs> so yeah. I, I think what you need to do is find something you love to do. And the yeah. second thing I think that at least works for me is if you're really serious about balance, it's not an ad hoc back and forth decision. I mean, all of us go to sleep every night. All of us eat three meals a day. So make the decision to be home for dinner every night. Make the decision uh, to not turn on the Internet from 7 to 11 every night or whatever it is that makes you happy, and then don't break the rule. There are lots of other rules you don't break. If you're serious about this balance thing, then be serious about it. Yeah. You know, I, I think balance actually sometimes, though I, I, that was a poorly chosen word for me because what I like to do is manage the chaos. Um, it's going to be chaos. You're not going to have balance, but you, you hit the nail on the head. If you're enjoying what you're doing, uh, then it's, it's going to feel like balance. So let's talk a little bit about books. Um, you uh, have a, a pretty uncanny knack, I think, of, I guess you're a marketer, this makes sense, of, of coming up with some pretty tremendous marketing promotions when you are surrounding the launch of a book. But they're, you know, they're not the new cool way to get a whole bunch of people to write about my book. They always, uh, they, they have a level or a depth that I think is is so instructional for folks. And, and for, for example, and, and hopefully you can Hopefully you don't mind sharing some of your kind of overall plan for uh, for Lynchpin's launch, but the whole write a review copy, uh, write a review and get a review copy promotion that you ran that then tied into a fundraising effort uh, that you believed in that also then tied into a community. I mean, um, I, the the results were brilliant. I I guess <laughs> you could shed some more light on it. They appeared to be, but I wonder if you could talk about that and and how it relates to kind of your thinking about marketing? Well, I've been doing this for uh, 10 years since the Permission Marketing book came out, and the rules have been the same. You know, being a hypocrite is no fun. So if you're writing a book about permission marketing, you ought to use permission marketing to market it. If you're writing a book about idea viruses, you ought to create an idea virus around it. So my rules are, one, um, I try to use an approach that mirrors or amplifies the idea in the book itself because if it's not good enough for me, it's not good enough for my readers. Number two, I try to do something that almost anyone could do. Right? I don't like hearing people say, well, you did that because you're, quote, Seth Godin. I could never do that. Uh, number three, uh, can't spend a lot of money. None of the promotions I've ever done have cost anything near what a book publisher traditionally spends on promoting a book that becomes a bestseller. Because again, I'm trying to make the point that money is not the answer uh, to these uh, situations. And the last thing is, the only reason I write books is to be generous, not to be selfish. There are way better ways to make a living. In fact, every way to make a living is better than trying to make a living by writing books. Uh, so I do it to be generous. Therefore, no spamming people, no posting stuff that people aren't glad to read, no saying, well, you know, I've been doing all this, now it's my turn for you to do something for me. That's not allowed. So what I did with this book is I realized that the traditional amplifiers of book ideas, the book reviewers, the people at the newspapers and magazines, are an endangered species. Most of them are gone, and the few that are left are so overwhelmed by all the authors who want a piece of them that it's no longer an effective or predictable way 
to promote your book. So we embargoed the book to all traditional media. We didn't send out review copies. We didn't call people up and say, would you please put this in the New York Times or Forbes magazine or since we created it. Instead, I went to my readers and I said, here's the deal. I'd like you to be the reviewers of the book, and I'd like to send you a free review copy at my expense. Of course, I can't afford to do that to everyone who would respond because free is a magic word, mm-hmm. and it scales to infinity. So I said, I need to put some friction in. What's the generous way to do that? And my solution was to say, make a donation to my favorite charity. Uh, and it has to be at least 30 bucks. Well, the good news is we raised over $100,000 in about two days. Uh, really astonishing and made me feel terrific. Yeah. And every single person who did it was making a statement, uh, A, that they were interested, and B, that they were also a generous person. Believe it or not, I got angry email from some people who say, how dare you demand I give money to charity? Hmm. And you know what? That's their privilege, but I don't need them to read my book. Yeah. Uh, and where we ended up is uh, over 2,000 people uh, and hundreds in uh, the international community who got a digital preview version uh, now have a copy before anyone else can buy it. And the inclination to share and be generous hmm. means that many of those people are tweeting about it and blogging about it and telling their friends about it, which is far more effective than if I'd gotten one review in Forbes magazine or um, been on the Today Show. So that is one, I mean, there's a lot of things that Ashita, who's the head of Hoopla for this operation, and I are doing to create uh, an example, and that's just one of them. Did uh, just just a little side note, a brilliant obviously campaign. Um, I think the the fruit of it, you know, will will go on here for a few months. But uh, did that make your publisher nervous? Everything I do makes my publisher. <laughs> uh, the deal that I have with my publisher is uh, a person the size of an asset, an author of my shoes might. I never have. Right. So I'm a bargain, and in exchange, uh, I promote my books myself, and. They have to put up with things that I do that seem insane, um, from cover designs to giving things away uh, to not doing preview copies or galleys, et cetera, et cetera. And to their credit, they roll their eyes at me a lot, but they are quite flexible and enthusiastic about my craziness. Now, I haven't had a giant failure in a while. <laughs> Maybe the cereal boxes for free price inside was the last one. Uh, and after I had a giant failure, we should discuss whether they're still flexible. Yeah, that's right. Well, um, I'm a proud owner of the cereal box. Uh, it's here on my shelf, so it wasn't a failure with me. Um, the book title, I always like to uh, to delve into that a little bit. I know that you also do a lot of your own titling. Always, yeah. The title was originally called The Chef, the Cook, and the Bottle Washer. Hmm. And there's a lot to be said for that title. Because when someone says, what's the title mean? It's easier to explain that title than this one. However, in the Google world, this title is a much better title. Yeah. If you do a Twitter search, you're going to find that 90% of the tweets that you find for the word linchpin are my book. If you type it into Google or Amazon, you find my book. Um, so that was an important uh, element as a marketer in deciding what to call it. And and in tradition, the linchpin was was that big old thing that stuck that kept the wagon wheel on, right? I mean, is that is that it's sort of the first that, reference? Right. It's not that big. It's yeah. actually very small and has on a use to weight ratio, uh-huh. the most important part of the wagon. Yeah. 
And that's my point. Yeah. My point is that the system might be big and heavy and expensive, but without the linchpin, it doesn't work. In your own words, this book is about love and art and change and fear. It's uh, about overcoming a multi-generational conspiracy designed to sap your creativity and restlessness. It's about leading and making a difference, and it's about succeeding. Uh, is that about sum it up? It's pretty audacious, but yeah. <laughs> um, you know, they don't call it a revolution for nothing. Yeah. Uh, the Industrial Revolution was way more profound than any of us realized because we weren't alive and we didn't live through it. Uh, what it did was end a 50,000-year tradition of living in small villages and turn uh, the world on its head, create factory work and cities. Uh, it doesn't get much more profound than that. Well, that revolution is over. The industrial age in the United States is over. If you have a factory job it, that can be exported, it will be. If it can be mechanized, it will be. So who's left and what's left? What's left is a new thing that I believe is at least as profound as the Industrial Revolution was. And so what I tried to do, and I only had a couple hundred pages to do it, to say, if, if Adam Smith or Karl Marx were alive today, and they saw that individuals could own the means of production, and they saw that one person could leverage an entire organization or the whole world using the internet, what would they say? And then how do I make that not an academic treatise, but a call to action? And what I'm trying to do is, is write a book that uh, 20 years from now is still going to make a difference because I'm trying to outline the new rules, the rules your kids are going to play by, and if you intend to live to 90, as I do, the rules you're going to play by for a long time to come. You um, take on a few traditional systems. In fact, you say the population has been seduced, scammed, and brainwashed. And one system in particular is the school system. What do schools need to be doing that they're not doing? Well, let's understand the public school was invented by uh, public officials who were in the thrall of corporate titans and industrialists like Andrew Carnegie. And what they were obsessed with were two things. One, that we would run out of factory workers, compliant people who would work cheap. And two, that the factories would make so much stuff people wouldn't buy it all and we needed to train people to become consumers. Hmm. So public school exists to do those two things. Sit in straight rows, fill out the stuff with a number two pencil, speak when spoken to, don't interrupt, um, and buy a lot of stuff so you'll fit in with your peers. That's what we teach kids to do, and it's a giant error, and it's gonna backfire. What we need to teach kids to do is only two things, solve interesting problems and lead. And if you think about how much time we spend in public school teaching kids those two things, it's vanishingly close to zero. It's amazing. The uh, I don't have any statistics. This is purely anecdotal, but it's amazing how many um, of those compliant A students uh, have trouble getting along in life because they can't communicate or lead. That's right. <laughs> That's right. It, it, it works well if you go to the placement office uh, and look for a job or a career fair and look for a job for someone who wants you to be a compliant cog. But then you say, wait a minute, I'm looking for something big and important and you discover that people who do things that are big and important don't have a textbook and don't have a checklist and there are no number two pencils. One of my favorite quotes from the book on this, in the last few years, though, it's becoming clear that people who reject the worst of the current system are actually more likely to succeed. So how do you do that? Well, I, I, I guess what I'm saying is that we need to train ourselves and our kids 
uh, not to bring home an A, but to accept the fact that uh, a D in response to an artistic effort, a D in response to genuine human behavior is just great. Because what it shows is that you have overcome your fear of getting D. And what it shows is that you are willing to go to the edges and do work that people notice. I'm not in favor of laziness, quite the opposite. I'm in favor of insubordination. <laughs> your, uh, this is just my humble opinion, your last few books have felt increasingly personal, starting with The Dip and in and, and Tribes where you said you, you asked us to lead. Um, in uh, this book, I feel like you're asking us to become artists. That's exactly what I'm doing. And um, I wrote the book because I heard from a lot of people. I get a lot of email every day, as you do. I heard from a lot of people who were stressed and unhappy and disappointed where they were ending up. And I wanted to write something for them. And I wanted to write something for the kids I interact with every day. And I wanted to write something for the parents who have been abdicating responsibility to the system. Uh, and it is personal for me. This is the most uh, personal statement I've ever written anywhere. And a year after I've written it, I'm still proud of every word of it. I don't want to change it. I really want this idea to spread. We don't need to sell more widgets, and you know we don't need uh, to make a stock price go up. That's not what this country needs right now. What we need are people who are willing to stand for something and to do work that matters. You um, have in the past uh, used animals. <laughs> to, to illustrate examples, and uh, in this book we meet the lizard, or at least the lizard brain, um, and I think that that, uh, well, I'll let you explain, you know, how, do, how does that play sort of hand-in-hand hand with, uh, with this resistance theme? Well, I didn't make it up. It's part of triune theory, and what it says is that there's a prehistoric brain stem right at the base of your brain called the amygdala and some other things around it that are precisely the same brain that's in a chicken and a lizard. And it is responsible for anger and revenge and safety and reproduction. That's all it worries about. It's a wild animal. And every single time you feel stressed that you have to give a speech or make a presentation to the boss or go on a job interview or do anything where you're tempted to fit in, that's the part of your brain that takes over, the lizard brain. And the difference between people who are struggling and people who are famous or people who are making a difference or people who are well-paid or people who have great jobs. The only difference is that those people have figured out how to quiet the lizard brain. Mm -hmm. In their own way, they figured out how to say to the lizard, you are confused. You are living in the era of the saber-toothed tiger. We don't live there anymore. Be quiet. Okay, um, I'm going to ask you the how-to question. Um, is there a how-to to break out of this resistance? Is there a how-to out there to be a creative genius? Well, if I could tell you what to do, then everyone would do it. And if everyone did it, it would be worth nothing. Um, so I can't tell you what to do. What I can tell you is you need to decide to do it. And in my experience, once someone decides to do it, they find a way to make it happen. That what we're missing is not the tactics. We're missing the will to choose. It's kind of like uh, you hear people's stories about quitting smoking. You know, they tried all the gimmicks and the gadgets, and then one day they just stopped. Yep. Yeah. Um, going back to the animal theme, I'm curious why the unicorn did not show up in this book. This seemed like a perfect place for the unicorn. Um, you know, there's a, a little carnival going here on in my office. There are action figures and mannequins <laughs> and a lot of 
things that I try to put out there to see what resonates. Uh, Purple Cow was one of them. It resonated immediately and everyone got it. Uh, the unicorn didn't resonate the way the lizard brain resonated. Yeah. I try stuff out on people. I have dinner with people. I talk to people. And I would talk about the unicorn and guess who would shut it down? It's the lizard. You talk to people about being a unicorn in a balloon factory and the people who aren't ready to do that will think of a thousand reasons why it's not for them. They'll think of a thousand reasons why that's not good for humanity or it wouldn't work in their case. And what I needed to do, if I only could you know, put one animal in my book, is explain to them why they've been holding back. Because if you don't know why, then showing you what's next isn't going to do you any good. Well, Seth, I'm going to let you go because uh, I know you've got a few more of these to do. It is always great to visit with you. The, the book uh, is officially on sale at the time that uh, that we uh, are airing this, so go out and get it if you don't have a copy. Um, certainly, uh, it, it, you'll have more information about it. These reviews I've, are, are already starting to bubble up, so uh, there will be so much information about this book that it will be very easy for somebody to make a decision about buying it. Can I just say one thing before you, you hang up? You bet. We need to thank you more for leading, for going out on a limb, uh, for being generous beyond measure, because there are very few people who are showing uh, entrepreneurs and small businesses the way as clearly as you are, and I, for one, appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. Uh, that means a tremendous amount to me, certainly coming from you or coming from anyone, actually, because, uh, but I, I will have to say that I, I have found a way to tap the secret you talked about. I'm having a blast doing it. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Seth, thanks. thanks. Hopefully we'll visit again soon. Okay, see you. Bye. This episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast was brought to you by GoToWebinar, where you can increase your reach and have unlimited webinars for one low rate. Visit GoToWebinar.com and start your free 30-day trial today.